0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Earlier this week, the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group hosted a public webinar entitled Puncturing the Paradigm, Education Policy in a New Global Era. The webinar brought together Professor Tony Verger and Professor Andy Green to discuss their new co-edited handbook on global education policy. D. Brent Edwards, Jr. moderated the event. I'm going to play the webinar's audio here, but encourage you to check out freshedpodcast.com, where you can find a video of the event. I hope you enjoy the show, and I'll be back next week with our final episode of the year.
1: morning everyone Uh, we're going to get well at least good morning if you're on the East Coast Um, we're going to go ahead and and get started Uh, welcome to the fall webinar for the globalization and education special interest group of the comparative and international education society Uh, the title of today's webinar is puncturing the paradigm education policy in a new global era the Uh, focus of the webinar or the uh, genesis of the webinar is a new edited volume that has come out the handbook of global education policy uh, co-edited by Karen Mundy, uh, Andy Green, Bob Lingard, and Anthony Berger. Uh, A few of the presenters today have uh, participated in interviews over the last month or so uh, in the form of podcasts with the co-chair of the Globalization and Education SIG, so hopefully some of you have had a chance to listen to their comments uh, on the topic of global education policy uh, that serve as background for today's webinar. We should make one announcement before I turn it over to to the speakers. Unfortunately, in the past couple hours, Karen Mundy and Bob Lingard have sent me messages uh, saying that they have had issues arise at the last moment that were unexpected. So we're going to proceed with the uh, speakers, uh, Andy Green from the University College of London and Anthony Werder from the Autonomous University of Barcelona. Each one of them will share uh, comments for about 15 minutes and then we're gonna have question and answer for 30 minutes. Um, So the webinar will last about an hour. Um, It is being recorded so those of you who are here and who would like to share it with your colleagues or your networks can do so uh, afterwards. Um, And what we're going to try to do um, since uh, Bob Lingard cannot be with us today is we're going to follow up with him and uh, get him to participate in a a podcast so that he can still share the thoughts that he would have shared with us here today. Um, Karen Mundy was already on the show uh, earlier this year and so some of her thoughts have already been recorded and can be accessed in the form of the podcast. With that said, um, I'm going to go ahead and, and turn it over to to Andy Green or I believe uh, was it Andy or Tony who we decided would, would make most sense content wise to go first given the the last minute changes to the to them to the lineup
2: Tony, or... Yeah, I think that we say that I, I could first. That's, that's right. We, we changed it given the last minute
1: modifications. So uh, with that, said, turn it over to uh, Anthony Brugger.
2: Thank you, Brent. And well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, everyone, according to, to where, where you are. As Brent said, uh, this is the book that uh, brings us uh, together today. This is uh, the handbook of global education policy that I co-edited together with Karen Mundi, Andy Green, um, and Bob Linger. I, I will focus on the chapter I produced for for this book, but first I would like to maybe to introduce more generally that there are different chapters in this book. This is a um, a handbook with uh, 40 contributions uh, contributions from outstanding scholars that really look at how globalization and economic globalization in particular is really challenging education policy is uh, creating new problems that education policy is supposed to address but also we have some interesting chapters like for instance from martin Carroy, that really show how globalization itself is not only introducing new problems in the agenda, but also making it more difficult for the welfare states to address these educational problems, um, at least to do so via educational policy in the in the conventional way in the in the way it has been done so far. However, in in my chapter, I will rather focus on another important effect of of globalization. But in, in this case, uh, is more about the challenges that globalization is is putting in comparative education and, and in, in global education policy studies as, as such. So what we are witnessing, and I think that the fact that for the first time we have a, a handbook on global education policy with this type of, of title, is that we are in the face in front of uh, an emerging and upcoming uh, field of studies. However, there are still some gaps. In this, in this field of studies that in a way or the other I try to address in, in my chapter. So on the one hand we find that in global education policy studies there's a lot of research on a lot of scholars have been researching and especially theorizing about what is the the nature of the relationship between globalization and education and about what are the drivers the drivers of global education policy. So here we have world society theory uh, the global structure agenda for education from Roger Dale and other macro theories that have really, have really tried to deal with this macro debate of the relationship between globalization, the state and education, of course, Andy Green's, um, work also has been looking at, at this from this macro perspective. And then I think that there is now a very, uh, a very important current of, of studies that is looking at, at the other side of the coin. So how these global education policy agendas, how these global programs are being recontextualized at the national, at the national level, how national policy national stakeholders are making sense of these, of these global agendas, are interpreting them, translating them into their regulatory frameworks and everyday uh, educational practices. However, what I argue is that there is no so much empirical research um, in the middle of these two extremes. So something is happening between global agenda setting and recontextualization. And I argue that more research is necessary on what I call in the chapter policy adoption. So why national policymakers embrace, engage with global education agendas and under what circumstances they do so, whether they do it in a more free way in a more volunteer way uh, under coercion persuasion from international players and so on so i think that this is a very also complicated area of, of research but in any case is under under research i also argue in in the in the paper that in the most predominant approaches to global education policy and policy transfer in in particular there is this assumption that globalization is driving uh toward uh, policy convergence, so that we are in a in a global education policy field in which there is like some sort of isomorphism between national education uh, systems going on, and well, I want also to challenge this uh, assumption of globalization mechanically uh, mechanically conducing to uh, to policy convergence. So. In a way, I will use uh, cultural political economy as a framework to to challenge these two assumptions or or absences in in current global education policy policy studies. And actually, the case study of of my chapter is education privatization, and I think that is an interesting case in the sense that if we look at the statistical data on private enrollment in primary education and secondary education, we see that there is an increase in all world regions, um, in some regions more than in others, but in any way, we are witnessing um, that there is a a clear expansion of education prioritization all all around the world. So I want to see here in my short presentation, I will tell you a bit what the most important theories on policy transfer, global education policy would say about why is this happening, and also, I, w- I will try to to give you my version of, of this uh, phenomenon um, by using uh, cultural, political, economy approaches. So, in policy transfer or in mainstream policy transfer literature, um, we find a first uh, a first assumption that is, let's say, based on theories or rationalistic approaches, rationalism. That basically they will tell you that okay the policies that work are those policies that will travel. So if a school autonomy, if a school accountability, if privatization are policies that work, uh, then it makes sense that more and more countries will um, will be willing to engage with this policy with this policy agenda. So there is an assumption in rationalism that national decision makers, policy makers, politicians are, let's say, rational agents that in the face of different problems, they will look for the best, the best, the most optimal policy solution. Um, Usually in in a more internationalized policy space, they will look for different experiences, different national uh, educational systems, and they, they will try to import those policy solutions that probably will fit better in their environment. However, this is not a very good uh, approach for education privatization because we know from um, a lot of research that education privatization and related policies like voucher systems, charter schools, uh, academies, Mm -hmm. are not a a very, are not a policy that generates a lot of consensus in the sense that it's not very clear that they possess a more educational effectiveness and actually if there is any something that is clear from existing research on education privatization is that this type of policies they produce more inequalities. However, uh, we still see that education privatization is expanding all around the world. I think that uh, as a response to rationalism, uh, the world culture theory that is another of the big theories provides with with an alternative that I think that is important also to explore and I explore it in my my chapter. in a way, world culture theory or world society theory, it depends on who is uh, using these, uh, these labels, um, are skeptical of what is the rationalistic, uh, rationalistic approach to policy transfer. So this approach is really challenging the fact that countries are adopting global policies because they need them or because uh, these policies work. But the main reason why countries are engaging with these global agendas is because of legitimation pressures that these countries uh, face. So there is a need for nation states to, to conform to international ideals of education systems to, let's say, more modern educational systems. And today we know that school choice, school diversification is a global norm. So countries will embrace in a sort of emulation strategy, these global norms independently of whether this, uh, this is a policy that works or, or not. I think this is a valid point. However, world culture theory is not uh, complete enough to provide with, let's say, uh, a more complex analysis of what are the interscalar dynamics between the global and the local, and sometimes they do not consider that these global norms, especially at the national, local level, generate conflict, are are very much contested. So uh, they take for granted that there is is, uh, a big consensus around global norms that when you look at the local level, you see that it's not so clear that this consensus is is there. So this is why in the chapter I use uh, cultural political economy to, to respond to the to this question of why education privatization is, is spreading and and how. So very broadly speaking, cultural political economy is, a, is an approach that is, I would say that is more an ontological approach, in the sense that it's trying to say that uh, in all institutional transformations, educational reforms, there is an interaction between cultural political and economic factors. And in the version that I use in the chapter from, from Bob Jessop, I highlight the fact that cultural political economy forces us as researchers to, to unpack policy processes in different, in different moments. And these moments are um, what Bob Jessop calls the moment of variation, the moment of selection, and the moment of pretension. So in this, in this sense, cultural political economy is not only is not only an ontological framework, it's also a very useful uh, heuristic framework that helps us to, uh, to, to identify useful categories in, in educational reform. So when he talks about variation, mostly refers to these windows of opportunity for, for educational reform. So what are the contingent emergencies of new practices, like in some countries there is a PISA shock, uh, in other countries, there are external pressures from international organizations, or in other countries, there is an internal internal dissatisfaction from public opinion with educational systems. so there is, there is always a reason for for promoting an educational reform that is this moment of variation. After variation happens, there is the moment of selection that is when the key stakeholders and the government in particular are going to to select some of the policy solutions that are probably according to them most appropriate to address the challenges in in question and usually political ideology but also economic administrative viability are very important variables to understand why some policies are selected and others are not selected and um, somehow are, are rejected and finally there is the moment of retention and i think that this is important and here is where the political economy approach is more important because sometimes there are governments that they select some policies or they want to promote some reforms, but these reforms are not retained because of the political architecture or the political struggles that prevail in particular contexts. So as I said before, if we look at the statistical data on on private school enrollment, there is this clear temptation to, to really say, okay, there is a convergence about education privatization all around the world but after applying this um, this uh, cpe cultural political approach to to what's going on in different countries according to the to the literature we observe that there are actually multiple policy trajectories that reflect um, that reflect how and why education privatization happens and in a way this is a, a work that in the, in the handbook chapter, I, I defined the framework, but I could develop later on in this book, I did with Clara Vila and Adrián Hancajo on, on actually is a systematic review of all the political economy, re- literature on, on educational privatization. And in this book, we observe that there are different trajectories, different paths towards education privatization. So there is one path that is the most well known, That is the neoliberal path toward education privatization promoted in the 80s in Chile and in the UK, where education privatization was a radical uh, state sector reform, uh, in the sense that it changed drastically what is the role of the state in education. But but this is only one of the ways education privatization is is happening. If we go to other countries with a history of um, Catholic or Protestant schools, in education delivery, we find that there they are what we call historical public-private uh, public-private partnerships that they don't follow the same rationale of the neoliberal uh, reforms. Actually, most of these public-private partnerships were adopted in countries like the Netherlands, Belgium, Argentina, much before then the neoliberal agenda became hegemonic. Then we have a third trajectory that we call scaling up privatization that is how school choice reforms are advancing in not in a very linear way, but as a back and forth dynamic, especially in countries that have a federal regime and are very much decentralized like the US, but also Canada, Brazil, Colombia. Then we have a fourth path that is uh, how education privatization is also advancing in the context of catastrophes. Uh, post-crisis, post-earthquakes like in uh, Haiti, uh, New Orleans, El Salvador after the war, uh, etc. So this is a very different type of, uh, of trajectory. In a way, we, the catastrophe is used as a window of opportunity for market reformers to advance privatization reforms. Then if we go to Nordic countries in Europe, where they have a tradition of social democratic welfare states, we see that they are adopting, in a way, uh, education privatization reforms for very different reasons. I mean, here, the explanation is very much related to the evolution of, of, the, of the social democratic ideology in this context of the third wave. And finally, we find a sixth, uh, sixth trajectory that we call de facto privatization that is happening in low income countries with the expansion and the emergence of what are called low fee private schools. So since I think that I am running out of time, let let me conclude by saying you that, um, well, the main conclusions of of my work and the chapter in particular I'm presenting here is that first of all, more research and in particular more empirical research on policy adoption is is necessary in comparative uh, education. The second thing is that policy convergence in education is something that cannot be taken for granted as an outcome of globalization. And the third thing is that if we want to take globalization uh, seriously, it requires contemplating and researching the multiple policy trajectories that global education models follow. And to do this, we need to uh, have in-depth knowledge of the specific context in which global policies are being Disseminated and adopted, and and we need to infuse local institutions and actors, including policymakers, social movements, with agency and transformative powers. This is all for now. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Tony. Uh, thank you for se- thank you for setting the stage, uh, giving some overview of some some general theories and different different reasons and trajectories. Uh, specifically with with regard to um, privatization. Um, With that in mind, uh, let's turn now to to Andy Green from the uh, University College London, uh, who will build on his uh, previous comments in the podcast on uh, social cohesion as a global education policy. So, uh, Andy, thank you for joining us, and I will now uh, turn it over to you. One, one second, Andy, one second, no, we can't hear you. Andy? Still sound? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Go
3: ahead. Can you oh. hear me now? Yes, go ahead. Okay. Uh, so, hello everybody. Um, this, this, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, one of the chapters in the section, second section of the book. Um, the chapter I wrote is about uh, perspectives, global policies on education and social cohesion. Um, it belongs in this second section of the book, which is really looking at some of the overarching uh, large scale kind of assumptions behind global education policy and what I argue here is that uh, policies for uh, promoting uh, social cohesion and social benefits in general through education are one of the major uh, strands in global education policy. Um, National governments frequently cite social cohesion as one of the two overarching uh, objectives along with uh, enhancing national economic competitiveness of uh, public investment in education. And the global education discourses, which are promoted by uh, international really uh, very often echo the same theme. So uh, many, many reports from OECD, UNESCO, uh, World Bank, or the European Commission, are emphasizing the importance of education uh, for social cohesion. Uh, The terminology can change, of course, all the time, and sometimes the debate is about uh, peace education, sometimes it's about education in conflict societies or post-conflict societies. Sometimes it's about uh, forms of citizenship education and what they can achieve. Uh, it can be about uh, relationship education and all sorts of other themes. So basically, these are all relating to uh, what you might call the social benefits of education. Um, The European Council once famously declared in its uh, 2000 Lisbon goal, uh, a 10-year target to make the EU uh, the most competitive and dynamic knowledge-based economy in the world, uh, capable of sustained economic growth with more and better jobs and greater social cohesion. These are the kind of grand statements you often find in regional or transnational policy statements. Uh, some people are sceptical about uh, the business of the in education. Uh, it's often argued that, uh, despite the rhetoric, in practice, policymakers treat social objectives, social cohesion objectives, as subordinate to economic objectives when it comes to education policy. And I think this may be true uh, when the two are seen in conflict, partic- particularly in the developed countries. Uh, skills formation tends to trump citizenship formation. Uh, In the newly formed or newly developing states, I would say education for nation building is often uh, necessarily a top priority and that tends to keep the focus on the social and political objectives of education. Um, But for all that, I think it's fair to say that countries do generally take the issues seriously. Uh, because it, education is associated at the individual level with many positive social outcomes, including better health uh, and well being political and civic engagement, uh, more voting, and so on and so forth uh, and this can of course potentially save government and taxpayer uh, investment costs in terms of health care or the criminal justice system or whatever. Uh, Hence, the enthusiasm of a lot of policymakers, certainly in my country, in the United Kingdom, uh, for monetizing the social benefits of learning. That's to say, actually calculating how much the taxpayer is saved in, in, in costs for healthcare, say, by people being better educated. It is fair to say that social goals are amongst the main goals in global education policy. Uh, Exactly how what policies are promoted to achieve these uh, may vary, Uh, but the overall objective is pretty much shared uh, in global policy organizations. Um, The problem, I think, uh, with much of the global policy on education and social benefits and social cohesion generally uh, is that it's not really clear if it works and, if so, how it works. And if you don't know how it's working, uh, it's very difficult to specify uh, effective policies which will uh, really make a difference at the societal level. Um, for most policymakers, I think uh, the analysis of education and social outcomes uh, starts uh, from the evidence on the benefits of education to individuals. So the studies in various countries demonstrate that more educated people tend to uh, show levels of social and political trust, uh, higher levels of civic and political engagement, uh, of democratic values and tolerance, and to be uh, less prone to commit acts of violent crime. Uh, These have all been shown to be uh, true in cross-country analyses uh, and for specific countries. Uh, given social other, certain other contextual effects. The problem for analysis is that we don't really know uh, much about whether individual ac- effects associated with education translate into societal benefits. So, for instance, in many developed countries, education levels have been rising at the same time as levels of tolerance, trust, uh, and political engagement. Uh, have been in decline so the question is how do we uh, what we know about the mechanism by which benefits deriving from education uh, to individuals how these aggregate into societal benefits or indeed if they do so at all Um, so a number of different theories are proposed Uh, To explain the potential links uh, between the effect of education on individuals and their attitudes and behaviors and on society as a whole, they generally involve stipulating a pathway or mechanism through which learning affects individuals and then an aggregation uh, mechanism through which individual effects translate into societal effects. And you can characterize these generally as um, absolute direct effects positional effects and uh, distributional effects. So Absolute effects would occur where learning uh, impacts on individual attitudes and behaviours directly without being mediated by other factors, uh, for instance, future employment, and when the impact of education on an individual uh, is not affected by his or her education level relative to other people's education levels. So, it's an absolute effect. So, a number of uh, writers would argue that the relationship between education and tolerance takes this form, uh, because education increases knowledge and cognitive ability. So, more educated individuals are said to acquire a greater breadth of knowledge and understanding uh, of the diversity of human conditions, which makes them more sympathetic to different lifestyles and beliefs. They're also said to acquire higher cognitive abilities, for instance, in sifting information and evaluating arguments, uh, so that they can see through false stereotypes and irrational prejudices. The problem, though, is that uh, tolerance, for instance, is declining in many countries uh, when education levels are rising. Now, this is not necessarily because education isn't having any effect. Uh, it may be because other contextual factors are overwhelming or counteracting the positive effects uh, of education. The second uh, aggregation mechanism that uh, is discussed in the research is uh, called the positional effect or relational effects. So in this scenario, uh, the effects of education are positional and may not translate into societal effects at all. And this is because it is an individual's level of education relative to others that matters uh, and not his or her level of education in itself. Uh, so there's a famous study in the US, in the US uh, by uh, Nye and others. Which uses this theory to explain why levels of political engagement in the US are declining at the same time as education levels are rising. So that young people are less inclined to vote, uh, they're less politically engaged in various ways than older generations, even though they are considerably better educated in terms of years of schooling. And the argument that's put forward here is that. Um, The activities which constitute political engagement are essentially competitive uh, and zero-sum. So access to political influence depends on what the authors call network centrality. and Network centrality is largely determined by educational status, uh, which is in turn influenced by educational uh, levels. But because education acts primarily as a sorting mechanism, It is not your absolute level of education which determines your occupational status uh, so much as your level of uh, education relative to other people. So, where you have positional effects rather than absolute effects, uh, you you can't be sure that uh, individual social benefits from education will aggregate socially uh, at all. It will depend on uh, relative uh, effects between different people. Uh, the third type of uh, mechanism uh, that is discussed in the literature uh, is referred to as distribution effects. Uh, and these differ from other kinds because they cannot be conceptualised at the individual level. Uh, an individual doesn't have a distribution. There are societal effects that occur as a result of the way certain goods, including education, are spread around within society. Distribution effects are widely considered in debates around um, the uh, impact of, social impact of income inequality, for instance. The social epidemiologist uh, Richard Wilkinson um, argues, for instance, that income inequality is associated across countries with a wide range of negative social outcomes uh, in relation to public health, uh, life expectancy, obesity, child well-being, uh, as well as social trust, political engagement, uh, social mobility and crime. Now, there's been a lot of debate about whether these associations imply causal relationships, uh, but Wilkinson himself puts forward uh, some compelling psycho social arguments as to why inequality may affect individuals in ways that lead to negative societal outcomes for instance high levels of income inequality generate various kinds of high stakes competition uh, which can become a source of conflict and stress and anxiety for individuals and this in turn can lead to negative health attitudinal and behavior outcomes uh, you can say Case for a distributional effect um, from uh, in terms of skills and education. It can be used to explain the negative association which exists across countries uh, between skills inequality and social trust, for instance. Skills inequality may have a distributional effect on societal outcomes uh, through income inequality, uh, which it influences, but it may also have independent effects. Uh, through similar mechanisms as have been postulated by Wilkinson uh, for income equality. So, skills inequality may, for instance, agenda uh, greater social distance between groups of individuals and it may also raise levels of anxiety and stress as a result of more intense competition, high-stakes competition for jobs and so on. In conclusion, uh, it's fair to say that uh, research on the social outcomes of learning does clearly show that education brings benefits to individuals in many countries in terms of improved levels of health and general well-being, higher levels of social trust, uh, civic involvement, political engagement and so on. But not all of these individual benefits translate into societal benefits and this is because they are often, often positional effects or because they depend on how education and skills are distributed as much as on the mean levels of skills and education in a given country. Global policy on education and social benefits and social cohesion tends to rest on a rather simplistic assumption that individual benefits automatically translate into societal benefits. Uh, but as as we've seen, this is not always the case. This, on the one hand, leads to an overly optimistic assessment of the assessment of the be- social benefits of education uh, for societies as a whole, and can then lead to disillusionment when these are not realized. On the other hand, it leads to a failure to realize the full societal education, uh, particularly in terms of social cohesion. Many factors contribute towards the development of more trusting and cohesive societies, not least reducing inequality of wealth and incomes. But education can also play a significant role. But it's not just the overall levels of education that matter. A more equal distribution of educational opportunities and a a consequent reduction in skills inequalities uh, is equally important for promoting more cohesive societies.
1: Right. it seems like Andy are you there?
3: I'm still here.
1: Okay, sorry. You you froze for one second but you're good now.
3: Okay. So, one thing we can uh, say about global education policy is that it concentrates overwhelmingly on improving uh, average levels of education and average levels of skill and pays much too little uh, attention to Inequality in educational levels and inequality of skills, uh, which in many countries are increasing uh, with each generation. Um, in a sense, this is suboptimum for policies on education and social cohesion because many of them uh, will only work through these distributional mechanisms. Uh, it matters a great deal about how education and skills are spread around uh, for positive uh, social outcomes and. Uh, positive effects on social cohesion.
0: Thank you.
3: Okay.
1: All right. Thank you very much, uh, both uh, Tony and Andy. Um, uh, For the next 20 minutes or so, I suggest that we um, engage questions uh, from the audience and to facilitate that, I'm going to uh, I've unmuted everyone, so you now have the ability to, to um, ask questions through your your audio. So if you, if you like, you can either ask a question in the by using the chat function in the lower right hand corner, um, or you can chime in uh, by through your microphone. Um, while you uh, look into those options, I can get us started uh, by asking perhaps a, a general question. Uh, and one that I think many people are thinking about um, because conceptually, you both have laid out some very important issues uh, when it comes to global education policy. But I I wonder if you could could comment uh, on the methodological issue Um, because, for example, uh, Tony, you uh, make the case for um, why we should be looking at uh, the intersection of various... Um, factors and interests at multiple levels and so I wonder if you could just say a little bit about how uh, perhaps in your own work you have gone about you know how do you how do you look at that in practice uh, from, a, from a methodological standpoint I think people are might, might be wondering about that aspect of the study of global education policies.
2: Okay. Thank you, Brett, for, for your question. Yeah, I think that methodology is not only about what are the methods, also about what is our, our theory uh, about what methods are more useful in, in different settings. And I think that in a global education policy field, and I think that this is something that Andy has also elaborated, but also Roger and Susan Robertson we have to go beyond uh, methodological nationalism, methodological statism, methodological educationism. So we have to try to, to uh, build, let's say, research designs where we contemplate that there are actors operating at different scales that are influencing the educational policy process, also that there are non- non-state actors. This, this would be the challenge of methodological statism that are more and more influential in education policy. Uh, Usually, maybe they don't take the final decisions, but we have a lot of philanthropic organizations, consultancy firms and other non-state actors, social movements that are setting educational agendas. And also when we talk about how to challenge um, educationism, which I think this is usually a big issue in in comparative education. We try to, we we have to look at uh, factors that are beyond, beyond uh, the educational field that are affecting how and why education policy, policy happen. So say this, I think that there are different uh, tools and analytical tools and and methodological uh, techniques. That can be useful, and I think that, of course, doing interviews is very important with different stakeholders, especially because there is a lot of data on the policy process that is not um, is not published. So we need to to produce this data ourselves. Of course, document analysis is uh, also something that we can use, especially when it comes to identify what are the discourses and and the agendas of key international. Of international players, and I think that more and more uh, researchers are are using social network analysis techniques to try to make sense of different global education policy process, processes. Sometimes in a more quantitative version, but more and more scholars are also talking about network ethnography as a way to build networks from a more qualitative perspective. So it is what I, I would uh, I would respond in <laughs> shortly.
3: Can I add to that? Did you hear me? Yes, yes. yes. yes.
2: Not, not
1: anymore. Andy, uh, I think you can do
3: some. Hello? Yes, there you go. Okay. I would uh, agree with Tony about the importance uh, of understanding the context, and of course, uh, qualitative uh, methods have a lot to contribute towards that, uh, as well as quantitative methods uh, where we have the data. Um, One thing I would just add, though, one of the biggest difficulties, I think, uh, for studies of globalization and education uh, is to distinguish between the global policy rhetorics and what's actually happening on the ground and the effects it's having in different societies. Um, generally speaking, the uh, global policy rhetorics and of course there are very powerful uh, rhetorics which are being promoted by very powerful organizations. Um, generally speaking, they will find a great deal more uh policy convergence than you will actually find on the ground. And uh, in many ways it's a lot easier uh, to analyze global policy through global policy documents. Uh, because of course they're a straightforwardly available uh, source of information. Uh, but we do have to distinguish between uh, the arguments and the general vision uh, that, that are put forward. By policy agencies and national, uh, both supranational and national, and uh, the actual policies in use, which were adopted by different countries, and that takes you back, in some extent, to uh, what Tony was saying about legitimation. Uh, many governments will use global policy rhetorics uh, to legitimate uh, certain policies they wish to put in practice, but. It, In many cases, the policies they're actually enforcing are quite different uh, from those advocated by uh, the global policy organizations.
1: Mm. I'm I'm very glad you mentioned that. I just want to follow up with a quick question uh, before I introduce uh, the question that was asked by one of the participants, Um, but before we shift gears. one of the things that comes to mind is the is the is the issue that some researchers have pointed out, and that is that the same uh, global education policy uh, or the same reform in name can mean different things to different people at different levels, and can even look differently even though the same label is applied. And so, uh, what does that mean for the the concept of global education policy? and how we use it and how we theorize it. How do you, how do you
2: address that in your work? Um, are you responding, Candy, or do you want me to, to go first? No, go ahead, you say. Yeah, I think that actually what you say, Brent, is, is very important in global education policy, policy studies. So the fact that sometimes um, there's like a global model but this global model means different things to different stakeholders or as Andy was just saying it's being instrumentalized as a way to promote very different policy agendas so under the label of school autonomy school based management you can be promoting very different agendas maybe one more market oriented agendas or uh even progressive pedagogies can fit Within this type of a school autonomy, school-based management uh, labels, so I think that is is a fascinating uh, stream of research to try to see how uh, to try to track these multiple translations and interpretations of of global education policies. Definitely.
1: Okay. Thank you, Tony. Um, uh, Andy, I just wanted to check in with you to see if you uh, were waiting to respond, or if we should move move on.
3: Uh, I think we should move on to. We've got some questions building up. So okay, uh,
1: uh, all right. First, I'll turn to uh, Maria's question, um, and she has a question that relates to both the, the um, of both presenters. Uh, she's asking about if you could comment on the extent to which uh, privatization strategies um, are impacting social cohesion. And social stratification, and so uh, privatization in education as a as a global education policy uh, that clearly connects to uh, the work of both of you. Um, So Maria is wondering if you could comment on that. Well, I can. Andy, I think you muted yourself again.
3: Okay. it's probably easier to comment on how socialization policies uh, affect stratification um, than social cohesion. Um, the evidence is pretty clear on the first of those. Um, countries with more unequal educational outcomes, uh, whether it's in qualifications or in, in in skills levels, those things you can measure, like literacy, numeracy, and science skills, uh cross-nationally, um, the countries which have the most unequal outcomes uh, are countries which have more, uh, a greater proportion of fully, fully independent private schools, that's, that's to say high fee charging elitist private schools, uh, which have more tracking within their public school systems, whether in separate tracks within schools or separate types of school. Uh, countries which have less standardization or, um, how can I say, uh, more differentiation in curricula and pedagogies across schools and uh, countries which devolve funding uh, to the regional level which also creates inequalities. So. It it may be a a surprise to to see this figure which uh, the OECD produce uh, based on the studies primarily and what they say is that um, in most countries um, the level of achievement of a child uh, depends less on their social background. Uh, than on the school they go to and who they are educated with. And this is due to the effects uh, that uh, different types of schools have on the ethos, aspiration levels, so-called peer peer effects and school effects. And the countries, and we we know this uh, almost certainly from a lot of research, the countries uh, which are most successful in reducing uh, social reproduction or stratification through education, um, are countries where there's relatively little differentiation between schools. So, the countries, say in the OECD, which uh, have the least inequality in uh, in educational outcomes, uh, are the Nordic countries. Still, even though they're becoming more unequal than they used to be and the main reason why Nordic countries have relatively narrow dispersions of achievement and why they have smaller social gaps in achievement is because there is very little difference between schools and relatively little education choosing is going on partly because you have dispersed rural communities and there aren't many different schools anyway. Partly because you have all through primary, secondary education, there's no break at the end of primary so parents tend not to send their children to a different school Uh, and partly because school choosing policies just aren't so developed uh, except perhaps in Swedish cities. Um, So these are outcomes of the way you structure a school system and one aspect of the structure of a school system which increases inequalities is undoubtedly private schooling but it depends type of private schooling you are talking about. The most um, damaging, in terms of inequality, the most damaging forms of private schooling are the forms you find mostly in English speaking countries but not only, which is where you have fully independent high fees charging uh, very elitist schools running alongside the state sector. Um, This is associated with higher levels of inequality. In some countries where you have state subsidised Uh, private schools which are semi-private schools really it has much less effect and that's what we would be finding in all of the Nordic countries the private schools are basically part of the state subsidized education system.
1: All right Uh, Tony did you have a comment?
2: Yeah I think that and this response was very very complete I think that they are some very good pieces of research introducing the gender gender perspective in, in the education privatization debate especially in relation to the low fee private schools phenomenon and, and they show how poor families uh, when they have to uh, because they cannot pay fees for all the children if they have to choose they usually choose uh, promoting the boy having access to the low fee private school which means usually the exclusion from the education system of of the daughters of these of these families. So I think that there are a lot of implications of the expansion of privatization from the perspective of, of gender. But I also like this question because I think that uh, the gender perspective has been has not been very mainstreamed in, in global education policy studies. In in our handbook, we have a chapter from Elaine Anterhalter uh, that is titled "Gender and Education in in the Global Polity. but I would, I would say that is in general this is the gender perspective is not very is not very mainstream. I have um, I am now uh, running a, an educational research project that is trying to to track precisely the recontextualization of school autonomy with accountability policies, and we want to go from the global to the to the local level to the school level and we want to introduce the gender perspective to see for instance whether uh, t- male teachers or female teachers they uh, reappropriate or uh, use these new frameworks in a different way from the gender perspective but i think that this is maybe only a hypothesis at, at this point and but and something that is really well i would say that challenging from a methodological perspective but that I think that we need to to try to do more more and more in our in our research
1: okay thank you very much
2: um,
1: oh yeah i see that you raised your hand are you able to turn on your mic to ask the question or would you like to type it in the in the chat box All right, I will read uh, Nellie's question. Uh, Nellie is asking Tony, at uh, least two comments and, and one question as you can see there on the, on the right hand side if you look at the chat box. Um, regarding countries in the various paths of policy adoption, I think that Netherlands and Belgium are very different from the case of Argentina. It is important to consider history. In, in the Netherlands and Belgium, Privatization was the result of strategies to satisfy national constituencies along religious lines and linguistic lines. Argentina is a much more recent case of privatization. Second comment, I'm not certain I agree with the label Jessup proposes for the the third moment of adoption. Why pretension? This does not always fit other cases. Uh, Question, power is an essential part of political economic approaches with six different possible adoption paths to which, to which extent is power part of the third theory proposed by Tony?
2: Okay, uh, thank you, Nelly, for, for your questions. I just responded in the chat uh, to to what I meant by the third moment. Maybe it was an accent issue, but it's, it's not pretension, it's retention. I, I wrote that down just to make it clear. So, yes, so is talking about retention not uh, uh, pretension i think that the first question on argentina is a is a very important one and it's true that argentina now is going through a second phase of educational privatization in the sense that actually sort of low fee private schools are emerging in in the periphery for instance of buenos aires i have a a very good uh, phd student actually working on on this, Mauro Moschetti, it's also true that there are uh, agreements uh, signed in the 50s um, with the Catholic Church for a public-private partnership arrangement that is really, really similar to the to the one of the Netherlands and, and Belgium when it comes to content uh, to content and to the political context that made this type of PPP emerge. And actually, these low free private schools. Today are emerging in the context of this old, um, let's say, historical public-private-private partnership. Private okay. I I want to highlight that there are more similarities than than difference differences in this in this case. And and of course, power is is essential in uh, in the cultural political economy approach, but at the same time is, is challenging uh, when it comes. Uh, to understand power as an analytical concept, because again, um, it's not something that you can observe most of the times. Of course, when we talk about a wall bank conditionality uh, in, I don't know, El Salvador, Nicaragua, it's very easy to observe how the power mechanism operates. But in most cases, and I think that more and more power is uh, is a soft form of of power, and it works through through persuasion and the construction, the construction of hegemony. And this is, uh, as I say, much more challenging to capture from a methodological point, point of view, but theoretically it's clear that it, it should be in our in our research uh, designs. Uh,
1: no, yeah, I, I saw you, did you have a follow-up comment? I think we have time for one more question before we conclude. And that question was posed in the chat box by Yao Tong for Tony. He's wondering, uh, what are the effects of privatization on the strength and role of the state of education? And what does your research say about variation in this regard across countries?
2: Right. Yeah. Sometimes is uh, is assumed that privatization means that the state will be less powerful in in the educational system, but it's actually not the case in most in most cases. Especially when we think about privatization in the context of the neoliberal agenda, what's uh, what's happening is that there is a transformation of the locus of power. So the state is not supposed to be the provider, the direct provider of education uh, anymore, but it holds uh, a lot of power by defining what are the objectives of the education system, what are the legitimate contents of the curriculum. The state usually evaluates uh, through standardized testing the, the, the performance of the school. So there are different mechanisms that make state to be um, as powerful or even more powerful than than before. What is also true is that this is like the flat ontology of the market agenda in, in education, and there are some states that they have the capacity and, and um, let's say the economic and technical capacity to adopt this new role. But there are in other cases that uh, especially in low income countries, fragile states, that the state um, cannot play play this role and privatization de facto means that a more drastic market not a quasi market is being is being generated uh,
1: thanks very much I would like to extend this to, thank you to both Tony and Andy for joining us today um, I want to also uh, express my uh, regrets that Karen Mundy and and Bob Lingard could not be with us this morning uh, due to last minute uh, unforeseen circumstances. Uh, So thank you again, uh, Tony and uh, Andy, we really appreciate you um, engaging with us today. Later this week, I will share the link to the the webinar so that folks can can share it if they wish. Um, And with that, uh, I think we will go ahead and conclude.
0: FreshEd is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. This episode of FreshEd was produced by D. Brent Edwards, Jr. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Priming. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Please be sure to visit us at freshedpodcast.com, where a full video of today's podcast can be found. Thanks for listening.
1: I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.